I met him early in our days here, uh, the ministry, when I came to town in probably the early 70s. Uh, a year or two later, he was elected to the House of Representatives and was a great help to us in some of our pro-life causes and so on. He left the House to become a member of the circuit court. And I believe he was a circuit court judge, I think he told me 17 years. And then he left the bench to go on the Court of Appeals and the statewide court where they read the cases appeal, uh, on appeal. And he served there for 13 years plus and uh, retired a couple of years ago. He's also an author. He's written seven different books on uh, the law, legal jurisprudence and so on, specifically targeted to train and teach lawyers uh, the law. And so he's one of our most distinguished citizens, I would say, in the city of Florence. He is a good friend of mine and a good friend of our church. And I want you to welcome him tonight, Judge Ralph Anderson. Judge, come on up. Thank you, Pastor. It's a personal privilege for me to be in this house of worship tonight. Certainly, our friendship goes back so many years, and it is so meaningful to me. The trial of Christ. We all have familiarity with the trial of Christ from our study and reading of the Gospels. Our focus today is not simply on Christ as the Son of God or the Savior of the world, but Christ as a person like you and me on trial and charged with a specific crime. What was the justice system like at the time of Christ? In terms of that query that I posited, it is the bit illicit of the analysis tonight. What rights, protections, and procedural safeguards were available to an accused such as Christ? Were those rights and protections honored when Jesus Christ was charged and accused just like a criminal. As we examine the trial of Christ, we find it is interesting to learn the extent of the rights and privileges and protections available to an accused during the time in which Christ lived and how many of those rights which are important in our system of justice today emanate from the Bible. There are three views, three opinions about the trial of Christ. The first view our Jewish friends feel that Christ was indeed an offender against the Jewish law and that he was regularly and properly tried under that law and condemned as any other individual would have been condemned who had been doing the same things that Christ was doing in the day and age in which he lived. It is the Jews' belief that Christ was lawfully put to death. The second view would be that of a Christian who, while generally unaware of the legal implications, believes that Jesus was put to death by a mob of irresponsible men with little attempt to comply with judicial proceedings. The third view, a careful study of the legal system and the handing of the charge against Christ leads to this view, that Christ was charged with a specific crime under Jewish law. I digress here just a moment to say it is a bifurcated analysis. The Jewish law is here, and the Roman law is here. In the end, they are amalgamated. He was tried by a regular constituted judicial tribunal, according to the Jewish picture. The whole procedure in which he was tried was permeated with such gross illegality that the result could be nothing short of judicial murder. Was Jesus guilty of a crime punishable by death under Jewish law? Were the proper legal safeguards used to protect Christ as were required under Jewish law? The reality is Christ was tried by different tribunals. He was first tried by the Jewish court, known as the Great Sanhedrin. He then appeared before Pontius Pilate, and was tried under Roman law. In determining the Jewish law under which Christ was tried, we begin with the Ten Commandments, which are basic principles of Jewish law. 
we turn to the Hebrew law of the Old Testament that is found in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We need to be aware of the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D, which at the time of Christ was the great body of oral Jewish law that had been handed down from one Jewish generation to the next. The Talmud, about 200 years after the crucifixion of Christ, was actually recorded and written for posterity. However, at the time Christ was tried, it was strictly the oral law. The Pharisees were the recognized experts in the oral law contained in the Talmud. And they were chiefly responsible for that law being handed down from one generation to another. There were three levels of courts under the Jewish law. The first court was called the Court of Three. As the name implies, it consisted of three judges. They had very limited jurisdiction. These judges presided over courts similar to our magistrate court system in South Carolina. Their jurisdiction limited to small claims. These three judges went from area to area and heard cases within their limited jurisdiction. Beyond the court of three, there was another court called the Minor Sanhedrin. The Minor Sanhedrin heard more significant cases. The various members of the Minor Sanhedrin traveled over Israel holding court. The most significant cases were heard by the highest court, which was known as the Great Sanhedrin. It was the official religious civil criminal jurisdiction of the day. Only the great Sanhedrin could hear a capital case. That is a case punishable by death. One was not tried by a jury in those days under Jewish law. An accused was tried by the legal and educated biblical scholars who were members of the great Sanhedrin. The great Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members. They were recognized as the finest biblical and legal scholars in Israel at the time in which Christ lived. They were the experts in the law. Not all of them had to sit at one time. For the great Sanhedrin to hold court, a quorum was required and mandated. 23 members of the body constituted a quorum. Unlike our law, which requires a unanimous verdict to convict a defendant of a criminal offense. The law required only two above the majority of those judges sitting to convict a defendant. In other words, if all 71 members of the great Sanhedrin were present and voting at Christ's trial, it would take 37 of them, two above a majority, to find the defendant guilty. It also appears there was usually at least one or two judges of the great Sanhedrin who would play the devil's advocate role. That is, one who would take up the cause of the defendant, would support him and end up voting for him to ensure a fair trial or at least give the appearance of a fair trial. This practice was noticeably absent during the trial of Christ. No one came to his defense. The Jewish law applied to any individual charged with a criminal offense. Whether the accused was a Jew or not, it did not matter under Jewish law that Jesus was in fact a Jew. The Jewish law made no distinction between Jews and others. For example, if a man was a Samaritan, regardless of how much he might be hated by the Jewish people at the time, he was entitled to the same rights and privileges as a Jewish citizen under their law. Another observation about the Jewish law was that no man or woman could be convicted of a criminal offense or a capital offense one punishable by death, unless there was a testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act. Overt meaning public, open to view, observable, apparent. This was a very strict requirement under the Jewish law. You had to have two people who saw the crime committed who could testify that they saw the act being committed in their presence. The basic embodiment of the Jewish law was this principle. No one could be found guilty of a capital offense unless that strong evidence was available and presented. Part of this requirement is connected to another protection under the Jewish law, a protection which extends far beyond our own system today. According to Jewish law, in a trial such as Christ or any other individual who would come to be tried before the great Sanhedrin, 
circumstantial evidence was not admissible. Listen, folk, circumstantial evidence is used in almost every criminal trial in this country today. It is the most admissible evidence because many times there is no direct testimony in regard to the offense that was committed. Evidence that was circumstantial could not be admitted. Our law allows circumstantial evidence, but the Jewish law was strict. It was a protective law. In many instances, many criminals today convicted on circumstantial evidence would not be convicted under Jewish law. Under Jewish law, any trial had to be a public trial. That is what we require today. Under Jewish law, the trial of a capital case had to be held during the daytime and not at night. We, we run court in this country many times at night. Sometimes they said about me that I had no clock. Quite frequently today, we have trials running into the night. That was illegal under the Jewish law. At sundown, you had to stop. There was no such thing as a night trial under Jewish law. A defendant under Jewish law had the right to engage counsel. Christ had that right, but he remained silent and made no request for counsel. There is conflicting information as to whether a defendant under Jewish law had the right to remain silent. We know about the Fifth Amendment privilege in our law today. There is authority that this protection against self-incrimination was available to a defendant under Jewish law. One source indicates that a defendant could not be forced to say anything unless the court placed the defendant under oath. Even that were so. It did not mean that a case could be based solely on the defendant's confession because it is clear under the Jewish law that two independent witnesses were required for a conviction. The Latin word aliendu, meaning from another source, is what was required. And that's the law in this country today, which is coupled with corpus delicti, which simply means there is a crime committed and the body of the crime is shown. Jesus did not speak up. He did not request counsel. He did not cross-examine the so-called eyewitnesses to his alleged offense. Jesus, in essence, consented to being railroaded, yet when he was put under oath, Jesus could not tell a lie. He acknowledged who he was and he is. We all know why Jesus acted and had to act in the manner he did. Basically, there were three groups who banded together to bring about the trial of Christ. There were the Pharisees, the religious class of the day. The Pharisees handed down the Talmud, the oral law, from one generation to the next. They were the experts of the Jewish religious law. The Pharisees prided themselves on their strict observance of religious laws and customs. They were more interested in ritualism and form than in the spiritual aspect of the worship of God. The second group, although not as numerous as the Pharisees, certainly had a key role in the trial and crucifixion of Christ. This group was the Sadducees. The Sadducees could be described best as the aristocracy of the day. They were the leaders of the synagogue. The chief priest of the synagogue was always a Sadducee. This was the money group, the one with political power. Other than the Romans who ruled the state of Israel at the time, the Sadducees were the most powerful group. The third group who helped bring about the trial and crucifixion of Christ was the Herodians. The Herodians, as the name implies, were loyal to Rome. The Herodians worked and cooperated with the Roman rulers. They were appointed by the Roman authorities to positions of influence and power, such as the tax collectors of the day. The Herodians were detested by the Sadducees and Pharisees who had a dislike for Romans. Yet, as we examine the circumstances surrounding the trial of Christ, we see how these three groups banded together to bring about the trial and crucifixion of Christ. Certainly these three groups, Christ was not the Messiah they sought. He was totally different from the world's concept of a savior or a king. He was a Messiah of humble birth. Yet he could enter the temple and speak fluently and question those of influence and power. He was the embodiment of love. 
At first, the Pharisees and Sadducees simply observed Christ in the ministry. They watched him initially not with fear, but with a little concern. They tried to prick him and discredit him publicly. At the outset, they were not too afraid of this stranger. He was just someone different. We see this view of Jesus changing as his journey and ministry progressed. We see it changing as he went from one village to another, becoming more popular with the masses. We see the beginning of the Pharisees sending spies and informers. They wanted to ask Christ about the great commandments. They wanted to ask him about the seven husbands and their wives. They wanted information which would discredit him and bring him in disfavor with his followers and the church authorities. Fear had replaced concern. Raising Lazarus from the dead was simply too much. It was said at the time, quote, if we let Christ go on, everyone will believe him, end of quote. We find in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, starting at verse 47, that following the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the great Sanhedrin, which would later cry, cry Christ, had a meeting. They were alarmed about Lazarus being raised from the dead. In verses 47, 48, 49, and 50, long before the trial of Christ, Caiaphas, the high priest and chief judge of the great Sanhedrin, said, quote, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not the whole nation should perish. End of quote. Here's the chief judge, supposedly fair and impartial judge, even before Christ was brought before him, saying Christ had to die, and that it was more proper for Christ to die than the rest of the nation of Israel to perish. The day after Lazarus was raised from the dead, you can sense the panic of the religious leaders increasing as Christ triumphantly entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, with the crowds crying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. People heralded Christ as their king, their political king. However, Christ's mission was not as a conquering, worldly king. As soon as Christ arrived in Jerusalem, he went immediately to the temple. At the temple, he cast out the money changers and reminded those present that the house of God was a place of worship and prayer and not a den of thieves. By this time, the Pharisees were on board. This event at the temple was a straw that broke the camel's back as far as the Sadducees were concerned. Christ at that moment had touched the Sadducees where it hurt the most, the power and control of the temple. Shortly after this, we find the Pharisees sending people to question Christ about his mission, paying tribute to Caesar, whether it was not lawful to pay taxes. We all remember Christ's answer, that we should render unto God the things that are God's and unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We move forward to the Last Supper and then Jesus retreating to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas approaches and kisses Jesus on the cheek. Christ is then arrested, the first arrest. He was immediately taken by the soldiers before Annas, who was the father-in-law of the chief priest and judge Caiaphas. You see the line, bloodline of consanguinity that is apparent there. Many recognize Annas as the real power behind the great Sanhedrin. This was the first illegal step in the trial of Christ as the soldiers carried him before a sole officer of the Sanhedrin. This act was strictly illegal under Jewish law because it forbade the examination of a defendant charged with a capital offense by a single officer of the Sanhedrin. We know that Jesus was struck by the soldiers and not given protection. This was illegal. Shortly after Jesus appeared before Annas, the next illegal step in the trial took place when the great Sanhedrin met with Caiaphas as the chief judge to try Christ at midnight. This constituted two errors. One, the law did not permit a trial at night for a capital offense. And two, it was against the Jewish law to hold a trial on the eve of the seventh or the eve of a feast day. Nevertheless, Jesus was hauled into court at midnight on the eve of the Passover. Christ had no counsel to represent him. From the record accounts in the Gospels, no opportunity was given to Christ to obtain counsel. 
During the trial, not a single member of the great Sanhedrin made any effort to represent or speak on behalf of Christ, as was the cups in the Sanhedrin. Shortly after the trial began, the court brought in two false witnesses. As the scriptures describe, these witnesses could not even get together on the same story, let alone testify and give competent evidence in court, as the two of them seeing the same overt act being committed as required and mandated under Jewish law. After these two witnesses failed to agree on one story, it became quite evident that testimony was insufficient to convict Christ of a capital offense. It was then that Caiaphas, the high priest and chief judge of the great Sanhedrin, stepped forward, forgetting his role as a neutral and impartial judge, and took over the proceedings. Caiaphas took charge, becoming both judge and prosecutor. From Matthew chapter 26, we find Caiaphas demanding that Jesus answer the charge of blasphemy. Blasphemy was the first criminal offense that Jesus was charged with under Jewish law. Jesus kept silent. Caiaphas then put Jesus under oath and asked Jesus if he was the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus answered, it is as you say. Caiaphas was immediately outraged. He tore his clothes and pronounced Christ guilty of blasphemy. We find the chief priest Caiaphas pronouncing Christ guilty. The other members of the great Sanhedrin unanimously agreed, although Jewish law provided that no man could be convicted on his confession alone. Once in, Eliundi. Following this unanimous verdict, there is a second hearing of the great Sanhedrin taking place at daybreak the next morning. Apparently, this was a thinly veiled effort to have a daytime hearing to ratify the illegal proceeding the night before because the Jews had to take Jesus to the Roman authorities to carry out the death penalty. The law is bifurcated at this point. You have the Jewish law and the Roman law. The Jewish law could come up to a point, but they could not put a person to death under Jewish law. A person could only be put to death under Roman law. The Jews had to take Jesus to the Roman authorities to carry out the death penalty. Rome had given latitude to the Jews to judge their own, but Rome drew the line when it came to the death penalty. The only way that Christ could be crucified was under the direction and authority of the Roman rulers. The Sanhedrin realized this, even though they had found Christ guilty under Jewish law of a capital offense. Since they could not execute Christ themselves, they had to take him before Pontius Pilate. Pilate, who was the Roman judge, the first appearance before the Roman authorities, the Roman court. Pilate had general supervision of Roman law. He administered the Roman law, and his duties included the protection of a defendant under the great ancient Roman legal maxims, those general truths that are fundamental principles of the law. Rome at that time prided itself on its marvelous court system and the many laws which protected those charged with criminal offenses who appeared in court. One interesting note is that blasphemy was no crime under Roman law. Blasphemy was an offense under Jewish law. It was no crime under Roman law. The great Sanhedrin knew Pilate was not going to be pleased about the offense of blasphemy, something that was not illegal and merely represented a skirmish among the Jews. The Sanhedrin had to come up with something that had a Roman flavor, and would pique Pilate's interest. The members of the great Sanhedrin decided at this daybreak meeting they would charge Christ with a new offense. Treason against Rome. That's the new offense, the second offense. Treason against Rome, which was indeed a capital offense, one punishable by death under Roman law. The Jewish leaders wanted this illegal proceeding attributed to the Romans. After all, the Jews recognized that Jesus had gained many followers and the Jews could be successful in removing Jesus from the picture yet transfer the blame to the Roman government. Christ is taken before Pilate who questions Christ. Pilate is the sole judge 
After questioning Jesus, Pilate reported back to the crowd that he found no fault in Christ. Not guilty. There was no treason. Christ was then entitled to be freed, but the crowd was growing angrier. This particular mob was becoming before becoming more unruly and was led and assisted by members of the great Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians. All had banded together at this point. Since the first charge failed in Pilate's judgment, another charge was made against Christ. That was the third charge. That charge was the crime of sedition. The third offense, the crime of sedition, which was a capital offense. Sedition was a crime that involved stirring up the people against the Roman rulers. And the Roman authorities, the Pharisees, were hoping for an answer that they could use to pit the Romans against Jesus. Pilate learns that Christ is from Galilee. Pilate's solution is to send Christ to Herod, who was the ruler of Galilee at the time. Herod happened to be in Jerusalem. It was the Passover. Christ was carried by the soldiers to be tried again, this time before Herod. This hearing was yet another mockery of justice. Even Herod, with his predisposition against Christ, found Christ not guilty. He passed the buck, which Pilate had passed to him, right back to the Roman judge Pilate. Herod found Christ not guilty and sent him back to Pilate with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate then tried Christ again and found Christ not guilty again. Pontius Pilate for the second time found Christ not guilty and wanted to release him. You remember the story. From his palace, Pilate told the assembled crowd that he had indeed found Christ not guilty of sedition and that he would chastise Christ and release him. Pilate would release Christ and hold Barabbas, a murderer, an armed robber. Pilate gave the crowd the choice. He thought this would appease the crowd. He would allow Christ to go free and crucify the criminal Barabbas. However, the assembled mob only cried louder for the blood of Christ. The mob demanded that Pontius Pilate not release Christ, but that Christ should be crucified and Barabbas should be released. Barabbas was released and freed from his crimes because Jesus took his place and Jesus took our place. Jesus would be crucified. His blood saves us and it frees us as well. Jesus made no effort to help himself either before the Sanhedrin or Pilate. This is especially significant with respect to Pilate because it is clear that Pilate found no wrong in Jesus and no legal basis to convict Jesus of a crime. There was nothing about Jesus which warranted death. Pilate was looking for an out, but Jesus gave him none. That was God's will. This is what Jesus came to do. How else could Scripture be fulfilled? He came to offer himself as a sacrifice. Jesus Christ shedding blood on the cross was a fulfillment of all prophecies. It was a sacrifice God had ordained. It was a final sacrifice to which all the Old Testament prophecies had pointed. But why did Jesus have to die this way? Why not just die in an accident or in some other fashion? Jesus was to die a judicial death to be executed for crimes, a criminal. Why did God ordain that Jesus die through this miscarriage of justice? In human terms, it was in every sense of the word, a miscarriage of justice. Jesus was put to death because people did not do and could not do what they should have done. What they did not do in the judicial realm spoke also of what they had not done elsewhere. He died for their sins. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. Jesus' death was completely in keeping with the Father's purpose. As Paul said, Christ was made sin for us. Jesus knew how he must die, and therefore he offered no resistance. He knew he must die, not under Roman authority, 
but under the authority and wrath of God. He had to be alienated from the Father with whom he had lived in communion for all eternity. That prospect was painful. We begin to have some sense of the agony of Jesus when he cried out, If it be thy will, Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thine be done. On the cross, separated from God for that moment, Jesus exclaimed, My God, why have you forsaken me? The most imperfect trial in history and the only perfect person, our Lord Jesus Christ. He did not commit a crime. He did not sin. He died on the cross for you and me. Let us humble ourselves and praise and thank God for the sacrifice of his son, the unblemished lamb, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, Judge Anderson, I thought we were going to hear, first of all, you, you ended more quickly than you told me you were going to. So. I thought I might hold out of the <laughs> But uh, did you learn something tonight? I'll tell you what, you listen to the um, illegalities and the indignities that our Lord suffered for us. We begin what we call the Passion Week this Sunday. In Europe, I like it better. They call it the Holy Week, the week of suffering, the week when the Lord Jesus Christ paid for our sins. And uh, some time back, uh, Judge Anderson and I were eating lunch, and he told me about this presentation that he had worked on and written. He became interested in the trial of Christ and the suffering that our Lord willingly, voluntarily took upon himself. And as he told me about it, he handed me a copy of it. I came back to my office and I read it. And I called him on the phone and said, why don't you come over here to the church on a Wednesday night during the, uh, during the Easter season. And I'm glad he could come tonight. I think it's a, a great way to begin our thinking about what this time of the year truly represents. And uh, my, that was informative and interesting. And Judge Anderson, I thought you were even going to go to preaching a little bit there at the end. Thank you very much. We appreciate you coming and doing this for us. Well, I didn't know. I thought we'd be rushing out the door at 8 o'clock. And uh, he got it in high gear there. So uh, remember, of course, next Wednesday night, we will be having the Lord's Supper. We do that every year on the Wednesday preceding Easter. And so uh, I, I know that you will want to do that. To me, that's the most meaningful time when we have communion together is at the uh, peak of the Easter season. Uh, I think Judge Anderson has some of his family here, maybe his sister, someone told me. Is that correct? And, would you? I think she's right back here. I think I spot her. And we welcome you tonight. And your brother too. Okay. Well, we welcome both of you tonight. Thank you for coming. Okay. Several family members, it looks like there. Well, we're glad to have each of you. Um, on, on the inside of your prayer sheet, we're not going to have our normal prayer time that we close with tonight. Tonight, announcement and prayer sheet. And the information is there. You'll have to read it because we have a little bit different schedule, of course, with a guest. There are letters from two of our missionaries. There are prayer requests, people with health needs, people who are bereaved that we want to continue to pray for, uh, announcements of upcoming things, and the whole back of it for you to write on and make copious notes of what's going to be said tonight, okay? 
So uh, get your prayer sheet. Anybody else need one? If you don't have a copy, hold it up, hold up your hand, and they're on the way. And we have some children down here didn't get one. Can anybody bring them a few down here on the front, very front row, right quick, okay? So welcome tonight. I've been promoting uh, a guest tonight for several weeks. And because of our tight schedule on Wednesday night, I don't want to delay, and we've cut our normal, some of our preliminaries, and I'll simply introduce him to you and let him come and speak to you, and uh, because I want to give him every moment possible that we can. I met him early in our days here, uh, the ministry, when I came to town in probably the early 70s. Uh, a year or two later, he was elected to the House of Representatives and was a great help to us in some of our pro-life causes and so on. He left the house to become a member of the circuit court. And I believe he was a circuit court judge, I think he told me 17 years. And then he left the bench to go on the court of appeals in the statewide court where they read the cases appeal uh, on appeal. And he served there for 13 years plus and uh, retired a couple of years ago. He's also an author. He's written seven different books on uh, the law, legal jurisprudence and so on, specifically targeted to train and teach lawyers uh, the law. And so he's one of our most distinguished citizens, I would say, in the city of Florence. He is a good friend of mine and a good friend of our church. And I want you to welcome him tonight, Judge Ralph Anderson. Judge, come on up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. It's a personal privilege for me to be in this house of worship tonight. Certainly, our friendship goes back so many years, and it is so meaningful to me. The trial of Christ. We all have familiarity with the trial of Christ from our study and reading of the Gospels. Our focus today is not simply on Christ as the Son of God or the Savior of the world, but Christ as a person like you and me on trial and charged with a specific crime. What was the justice system like at the time of Christ? In terms of that query that I posited, it is the bit illicit of the analysis tonight. What rights, protections, and procedural safeguards were available to an accused such as Christ? Were those rights and protections honored when Jesus Christ was charged and accused just like a criminal? As we examine the trial of Christ, we find it is interesting to learn the extent of the rights and privileges and protections available to an accused during the time in which Christ lived and how many of those rights which are important in our system of justice today emanate from the Bible. There are three views, three opinions about the trial of Christ. The first view, our Jewish friends feel that Christ was indeed an offender against the Jewish law and that he was regularly and properly tried under that law and condemned as any other individual would have been condemned who had been doing the same things that Christ was doing in the day and age in which he lived. It is the Jews' belief that Christ was lawfully put to death. The second view would be that of a Christian who, while generally unaware of the legal implications, believes that Jesus was put to death by a mob of irresponsible men with little attempt to comply with judicial proceedings. The third view a careful study of the legal system and the handing of the charge against Christ leads to this view, that Christ was charged with a specific crime under Jewish law. I digress here just a moment to say it is a bifurcated analysis. The Jewish law is here and the Roman law is here. In the end, they are amalgamated. He was tried by a regular constituted judicial tribunal, according to the Jewish picture. The whole procedure in which he was tried was permeated with such gross illegality 
that the result could be nothing short of judicial murder. Was Jesus guilty of a crime punishable by death under Jewish law? Were the proper legal safeguards used to protect Christ as were required under Jewish law? The reality is Christ was tried by different tribunals. He was first tried by the Jewish court, known as the Great Sanhedrin. He then appeared before Pontius Pilate and was tried under Roman law. In determining the Jewish law under which Christ was tried, we begin with the Ten Commandments, which are basic principles of Jewish law. We turn to the Hebrew law of the Old Testament that is found in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We need to be aware of the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D, which at the time of Christ was the great body of oral Jewish law that had been handed down from one Jewish generation to the next. The Talmud, about 200 years after the crucifixion of Christ, was actually recorded and written for posterity. However, at the time Christ was tried, it was strictly the oral law. The Pharisees were the recognized experts in the oral law contained in the Talmud. And they were chiefly responsible for that law being handed down from one generation to another. There were three levels of courts under the Jewish law. The first court was called the Court of Three. As the name implies, it consisted of three judges. They had very limited jurisdiction. These judges presided over courts similar to our magistrate court system in South Carolina. Their jurisdiction limited to small claims. These three judges went from area to area and heard cases within their limited jurisdiction. Beyond the court of three, there was another court called the Minor Sanhedrin. The Minor Sanhedrin heard more significant cases. The various members of the Minor Sanhedrin traveled over Israel holding court. The most significant cases were heard by the highest court, which was known as the Great Sanhedrin. It was the official religious, civil, criminal jurisdiction of the day. Only the Great Sanhedrin could hear a capital case. That is a case punishable by death. One was not tried by a jury in those days under Jewish law. An accused was tried by the legal and educated biblical scholars who were members of the great Sanhedrin. The great Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members. They were recognized as the finest biblical and legal scholars in Israel at the time in which Christ lived. They were the experts in the law. Not all of them had to sit at one time. For the great Sanhedrin to hold court, a quorum was required and mandated. Twenty-three members of the body constituted a quorum. Unlike our law, which requires a unanimous verdict to convict a defendant of a criminal offense, the law required only two above the majority of those judges sitting to convict a defendant. In other words, if all 71 members of the great Sanhedrin were present and voting at Christ's trial, it would take 37 of them, two above a majority, to find the defendant guilty. It also appears there was usually at least one or two judges of the great Sanhedrin who would play the devil's advocate role. That is, one who would take up the cause of the defendant, would support him, and end up voting for him to ensure a fair trial or at least give the appearance of a fair trial. This practice was noticeably absent during the trial of Christ. No one came to his defense. The Jewish law applied to any individual charged with a criminal offense. Whether the accused was a Jew or not, it did not matter under Jewish law that Jesus was in fact a Jew. The Jewish law made no distinction between Jews and others. For example, if a man was a Samaritan, regardless of how much he might be hated by the Jewish people at the time, he was entitled to the same rights and privileges as a Jewish citizen under their law. Another observation about the Jewish law was that no man or woman could be convicted of a criminal offense or a capital offense, one punishable by death, unless there was the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act. Overt meaning public, open to view, observable, apparent. 
This was a very strict requirement under the Jewish law. You had to have two people who saw the crime committed, who could testify that they saw the act being committed in their presence. The basic embodiment of the Jewish law was this principle. No one could be found guilty of a capital offense unless that strong evidence was available and presented. Part of this requirement is connected to another protection under the Jewish law, a protection which extends far beyond our own system today. According to Jewish law, in a trial such as Christ or any other individual who would come to be tried before the great Sanhedrin, circumstantial evidence was not admissible. Listen, folk, circumstantial evidence is used in almost every criminal trial in this country today. Is it, it is the most admissible evidence because many times there is no direct testimony in regard to the offense that was committed. Evidence that was circumstantial could not be admitted. Our law allows circumstantial evidence, but the Jewish law was strict. It was a protective law. In many instances, many criminals today convicted on circumstantial evidence would not be convicted under Jewish law. Under Jewish law, any trial had to be a public trial. That is what we require today. Under Jewish law, the trial of a capital case had to be held during the daytime and not at night. We, we run court in this country many times at night. Sometimes they said about me that I had no clock. Quite frequently today, we have trials running into the night. That was illegal under the Jewish law. At sundown, you had to stop. There was no such thing as a night trial under Jewish law. A defendant under Jewish law had the right to engage counsel. Christ had that right, but he remained silent and made no request for counsel. There is conflicting information as to whether a defendant under Jewish law had the right to remain silent. We know about the Fifth Amendment privilege in our law today. There is authority that this protection against self-incrimination was available to a defendant under Jewish law. One source indicates that a defendant could not be forced to say anything unless the court placed the defendant under oath. Even that were so. It did not mean that a case could be based solely on the defendant's confession because it is clear under the Jewish law that two independent witnesses were required for a conviction. The Latin word aliendu, meaning from another source, is what was required. And that's the law in this country today, which is coupled with corpus delicti, which simply means there is a crime committed and the body of the crime is shown. Jesus did not speak up. He did not request counsel. He did not cross-examine the so-called eyewitnesses to his alleged offense. Jesus, in essence, consented to being railroaded, yet when he was put under oath, Jesus could not tell a lie. He acknowledged who he was and he is. We all know why Jesus acted and had to act in the manner he did. Basically, there were three groups who banded together to bring about the trial of Christ. There were the Pharisees, the religious class of the day. The Pharisees handed down the Talmud, the oral law, from one generation to the next. They were the experts of the Jewish religious law. The Pharisees prided themselves on their strict observance of religious laws and customs. They were more interested in ritualism and form than in the spiritual aspect of the worship of God. The second group, although not as numerous as the Pharisees, certainly had a key role in the trial and crucifixion of Christ. This group was the Sadducees. The Sadducees could be described best as the aristocracy of the day. They were the leaders of the synagogue. The chief priest of the synagogue was always a Sadducee. This was the money group, the one with political power. Other than the Romans who ruled the state of Israel at the time, the Sadducees were the most powerful group. The third group who helped bring about the trial and crucifixion of Christ was the Herodians. The Herodians, as the name implies, were loyal to Rome. The Herodians worked and cooperated with the Roman rulers. They were appointed by the Roman authorities to positions of influence and power, such as the tax collectors of the day. 
the Herodians were detested by the Sadducees and Pharisees who had a dislike for Romans. Yet, as we examine the circumstances surrounding the trial of Christ, we see how these three groups banded together to bring about the trial and crucifixion of Christ. Certainly these three groups, Christ was not the Messiah they sought. He was totally different from the world's concept of a savior or a king. He was a Messiah of humble birth. Yet he could enter the temple and speak fluently and question those of influence and power. He was the embodiment of love. At first the Pharisees and Sadducees simply observed Christ in the ministry. They watched him initially not with fear, but with a little concern. They tried to prick him and discredit him publicly. At the outset, they were not too afraid of this stranger. He was just someone different. We see this view of Jesus changing as his journey and ministry progressed. We see it changing as he went from one village to another, becoming more popular with the masses. We see the beginning of the Pharisees sending spies and informers. They wanted to ask Christ about the great commandments. They wanted to ask him about the seven husbands and their wives. They wanted information which would discredit him and bring him in disfavor with his followers and the church authorities. Fear had replaced concern. Raising Lazarus from the dead was simply too much. It was said at the time, quote, if we let Christ go on, everyone will believe him, end of quote. We find in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, starting at verse 47, that following the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the great Sanhedrin, which would later cry, cry Christ, had a meeting. They were alarmed about Lazarus being raised from the dead. In verses 47, 48, 49, and 50, long before the trial of Christ, Caiaphas, the high priest and chief judge of the great Sanhedrin, said, quote, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not the whole nation should perish. End of quote. Here's the chief judge, supposedly fair and impartial judge, even before Christ was brought before him, saying Christ had to die, and that it was more proper for Christ to die than the rest of the nation of Israel to perish. The day after Lazarus was raised from the dead, you can sense the panic of the religious leaders increasing as Christ triumphantly entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday with the crowds crying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. People heralded Christ as their king, their political king. However, Christ's mission was not as a conquering worldly king. As soon as Christ arrived in Jerusalem, he went immediately to the temple. At the temple, he cast out the money changers and reminded those present that the house of God was a place of worship and prayer and not a den of thieves. By this time, the Pharisees were on board. This event at the temple was a straw that broke the camel's back as far as the Sadducees were concerned. Christ at that moment had touched the Sadducees where it hurt the most, the power and control of the temple. Shortly after this, we find the Pharisees sending people to question Christ about his mission, paying tribute to Caesar, whether it was not lawful to pay taxes. We all remember Christ's answer, that we should render unto God the things that are God's and unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We move forward to the Last Supper and then Jesus retreating to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas approaches and kisses Jesus on the cheek. Christ is then arrested, the first arrest. He was immediately taken by the soldiers before Annas, who was the father-in-law of the chief priest and judge Caiaphas. You see the line, bloodline of consanguinity that is apparent there. Many recognize Annas as the real power behind the great Sanhedrin. This was the first illegal step in the trial of Christ as the soldiers carried him before a sole officer of the Sanhedrin. This act was strictly illegal under Jewish law because it forbade the examination of a defendant charged with a capital offense by a single officer of the Sanhedrin. We know that Jesus was struck by the soldiers and not given protection. This was illegal. Shortly after Jesus appeared before Annas, the next illegal step in the trial took place when the great Sanhedrin met with Caiaphas 
as the chief judge to try Christ at midnight. This constituted two errors. One, the law did not permit a trial at night for a capital offense. And two, it was against the Jewish law to hold a trial on the eve of the Sabbath or the eve of a feast day. Nevertheless, Jesus was hauled into court at midnight on the eve of the Passover. Christ had no counsel to represent him from the record accounts in the Gospels. No opportunity was given to Christ to obtain counsel. During the trial, not a single member of the great Sanhedrin made any effort to represent or speak on behalf of Christ, as was the cups in the Sanhedrin. Shortly after the trial began, the court brought in two false witnesses. As the scriptures describe, these witnesses could not even get together on the same story, let alone testify and give competent evidence in court, as the two of them seeing the same overt act being committed as required and mandated under Jewish law. After these two witnesses failed to agree on one story, it became quite evident that testimony was insufficient to convict Christ of a capital offense. It was then that Caiaphas, the high priest and chief judge of the great Sanhedrin, stepped forward, forgetting his role as a neutral and impartial judge, and took over the proceedings. Caiaphas took charge, becoming both judge and prosecutor. From Matthew chapter 26, we find Caiaphas demanding that Jesus answer the charge of blasphemy. Blasphemy was the first criminal offense that Jesus was charged with under Jewish law. Jesus kept silent. Caiaphas then put Jesus under oath and asked Jesus if he was the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus answered, it is as you say. Caiaphas was immediately outraged. He tore his clothes and pronounced Christ guilty of blasphemy. We find the chief priest Caiaphas pronouncing Christ guilty. The other members of the great Sanhedrin unanimously agreed, although Jewish law provided that no man could be convicted on his confession alone. Once in, Eliundi. Following this unanimous verdict, there is a second hearing of the great Sanhedrin taking place at daybreak the next morning. Apparently, this was a thinly veiled effort to have a daytime hearing to ratify the illegal proceeding the night before because the Jews had to take Jesus to the Roman authorities to carry out the death penalty. The law is bifurcated at this point. You have the Jewish law and the Roman law. The Jewish law could come up to a point, but they could not put a person to death under Jewish law. A person could only be put to death under Roman law. The Jews had to take Jesus to the Roman authorities to carry out the death penalty. Rome had given latitude to the Jews to judge their own, but Rome drew the line when it came to the death penalty. The only way that Christ could be crucified was under the direction and authority of the Roman rulers. The Sanhedrin realized this, even though they had found Christ guilty under Jewish law of a capital offense. Since they could not execute Christ themselves, they had to take him before Pontius Pilate. Pilate, who was the Roman judge, the first appearance before the Roman authorities, the Roman court. Pilate had general supervision of Roman law. He administered the Roman law, and his duties included the protection of a defendant under the great ancient Roman legal maxims, those general truths that are fundamental principles of the law. Rome at that time prided itself on its marvelous court system and the many laws which protected those charged with criminal offenses who appeared in court. One interesting note is that blasphemy was no crime under Roman law. Blasphemy was an offense under Jewish law. It was no crime under Roman law. The great Sanhedrin knew Pilate was not going to be pleased about the offense of blasphemy, something that was not illegal and merely represented a skirmish among the Jews. The Sanhedrin had to come up with something that had a Roman flavor, and would pique Pilate's interest. The members of the great Sanhedrin decided at this daybreak meeting they would charge Christ with a new offense, 
Treason against Rome. That's the new offense, the second offense. Treason against Rome, which was indeed a capital offense, one punishable by death under Roman law. The Jewish leaders wanted this illegal proceeding attributed to the Romans. After all, the Jews recognized that Jesus had gained many followers, and the Jews could be successful in removing Jesus from the picture, yet transfer the blame to the Roman government. Christ is taken before Pilate, who questions Christ. Pilate is the sole judge. After questioning Jesus, Pilate reported back to the crowd that he found no fault in Christ. Not guilty. There was no treason. Christ was then entitled to be freed, but the crowd was growing angrier. This particular mob was becoming before, become, becoming more unruly and was led and assisted by members of the great Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians. All had banded together at this point. Since the first charge failed in Pilate's judgment, another charge was made against Christ. That was the third charge. That charge was the crime of sedition. The third offense, the crime of sedition, which was a capital offense. Sedition was a crime that involved stirring up the people against the Roman rulers and the Roman authorities. The Pharisees were hoping for an answer that they could use to pit the Romans against Jesus. Pilate learns that Christ is from Galilee. Pilate's solution is to send Christ to Herod, who was the ruler of Galilee at the time. Herod happened to be in Jerusalem. It was the Passover. Christ was carried by the soldiers to be tried again, this time before Herod. This hearing was yet another mockery of justice. Even Herod, with his predisposition against Christ, found Christ not guilty. He passed the buck, which Pilate had passed to him, right back to the Roman judge Pilate. Herod found Christ not guilty and sent him back to Pilate with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate then tried Christ again and found Christ not guilty again. Pontius Pilate for the second time found Christ not guilty and wanted to release him. You remember the story. From his palace, Pilate told the assembled crowd that he had indeed found Christ not guilty of sedition and that he would chastise Christ and release him. Pilate would release Christ and hold Barabbas, a murderer, an armed robber. Pilate gave the crowd the choice. He thought this would appease the crowd. He would allow Christ to go free and crucify the criminal Barabbas. However, the assembled mob only cried louder for the blood of Christ. The mob demanded that Pontius Pilate not release Christ, but that Christ should be crucified and Barabbas should be released. Barabbas was released and freed from his crimes because Jesus took his place and Jesus took our place. Jesus would be crucified. His blood saves us and it frees us as well. Jesus made no effort to help himself either before the Sanhedrin or Pilate. This is especially significant with respect to Pilate because it is clear that Pilate found no wrong in Jesus and no legal basis to convict Jesus of a crime. There was nothing about Jesus which warranted death. Pilate was looking for an out, but Jesus gave him none. That was God's will. This is what Jesus came to do. How else could Scripture be fulfilled? He came to offer himself as a sacrifice. Jesus Christ shedding blood on the cross was the fulfillment of all prophecies. It was a sacrifice God had ordained. It was a final sacrifice to which all the Old Testament prophecies had pointed. But why did Jesus have to die this way? Why not just die in an accident or in some other fashion? Jesus was to die a judicial death to be executed for crimes, a criminal. Why did God ordain that Jesus die through this miscarriage of justice? In human terms, it was in every sense of the word a miscarriage of justice. 
Jesus was put to death because people did not do and could not do what they should have done. What they did not do in the judicial realm spoke also of what they had not done elsewhere. He died for their sins. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. Jesus' death was completely in keeping with the Father's purpose. As Paul said, Christ was made sin for us. Jesus knew how he must die, and therefore he offered no resistance. He knew he must die, not under Roman authority, but under the authority and wrath of God. He had to be alienated from the Father with whom he had lived in communion for all eternity. That prospect was painful. We begin to have some sense of the agony of Jesus when he cried out, If it be thy will, Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thine be done. On the cross, separated from God for that moment, Jesus exclaimed, My God, why have you forsaken me? The most imperfect trial in history and the only perfect person, our Lord Jesus Christ. He did not commit a crime. He did not sin. He died on the cross for you and me. Let us humble ourselves and praise and thank God for the sacrifice of his son, the unblemished lamb, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you. 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 Thank you.